Hi, I'm Scott. I'm Seth. I'm Andrew. And this is Track Walking. This week we've got Andrew Rains from Apex Pro race car driving, coaching, and a fantastic uh, weathered wood accent wall. Uh, how are you doing, Andrew? Good. It's actually linoleum from Home Depot, but it looks like wood, ah, so I'll take the compliment. Okay. Well, it's better than the zebras and better than a bedroom, so <laughs> classing up the joint Unsurprisingly, sure. Andrew from Apex Pro is the most pro of all of us, so... Mm comes mm. with the territory you gotta mm. you gotta be prepared if you carry that moniker so i do what i can so i'm i i'm not quite sure where to start so why don't you just what what do you do now what takes up most of your time besides being a internet video celebrity uh that takes up most of my time nice um no i'm just kidding um uh most of my time is taken up with um responding to a lot of emails and uh, making phone calls, answering phone calls, but all related to uh, people that use the Apex Pro product or um, are interested in buying one. Um, so mostly, um, you know, anything that's related to selling an Apex Pro or answering a question about how to use it, um, and then creating a lot of content around answering those questions essentially and kind of helping people understand how motorsports data can help them or how to relate really how to relate motorsports data to my driving, like how to relate GPS data and, you know, input data that you might get from OBD2 or CAN or whatever to um, how to become a better driver. So um, more or less driver coaching. Uh, and then most of my weekends, either I'm being paid to coach uh, for Apex Pro clients that hire me. So I go to the track with them or I'm doing something that's like I'm teaching a classroom and helping people understand um, the value of data in, in a track setting. So that's that's a lot of different things, but, um, you know, and managing our dealer network, um, there's probably a lot more than I really realize, honestly. Legit running a business. <laughs> yeah, running a business, race car related stuff all the time. So yeah, um, I'm very thankful for that. When I talk to people on the phone, like if I make a, a phone call, like, you know, someone that's in our database and I haven't talked to him in a while and I just reach out you know we end up talking about the modifications they're doing on their car for 20 minutes in the middle of the day you know it's anybody's willing to take time out of their day to talk to you about their track car so yes if, uh, I'm, I'm pretty lucky if you ask somebody to talk about what they spend uh, an absurd amount of time and money on they will share it for sure so I found out about the Apex Pro uh, before the first time I did the one lap, which was in 2018. So I wanted to say the first time I started hearing about it was in 2017. Um, and I don't even kind of recall the platform it was on, but kind of what, and we talked about this a few weeks ago um, on the Truthing episode, but I was just kind of struck with how simple uh, the interface seemed with the lights. It's if you see red lights, you're not going fast enough or you're not turning hard enough or you're not braking hard enough that there's still, you are not driving to the cars and the tires full capabilities. And I liked how simple that was, but I also like that you, uh, without like diving into the data, like if you're just out on track driving a session or a race or something like that, you 
kind of had to figure out how to get that because it's I found like it'd be really easy to get like use all the grip on breaking and on entry but then I'd lose it all on exit so essentially like so how do you still get all of that here but gain some of it here and just trying to work through that in my mind actually made me I feel like a better driver without even looking at the data um, where how did the how did the whole idea of apex come to be I mean this this is a was a especially when it came out it was a pretty different product but where how did it actually come up yeah uh, great question it's a, it's a it's a fun story um, it's it's probably not very different than most people's stories in a lot of ways um, you know how you got into the sport and how you got involved with it it's probably pretty similar but um, I mean the the question that we try to answer with the display is kind of the cardinal question in driving which is like you know can the car do more can the tire do more um, and conceivably lap time is is kind of a function of driving the tire at its limit as much of the lap as possible right like it's it's not always about braking as late as possible it's not all about rolling as much speed through the corner as possible like there's there's a lot of different values that we place on different elements of driving to go faster so we kind of wanted to simplify like how you interpret you know what the car is doing and and more or less refocus our priorities on like do what it takes to drive the tire at its limit which is which is a pretty vague concept like it's a pretty gray concept like there's not a black and white answer but i think it helps people orient themselves in the right direction instead of thinking like there's a line there's a magic racing line that if i just put the car on it it's going to go as fast as possible yeah it's like we all know that's not true you know, and as a beginner, the line's very important because it helps keep you safe and it helps reorient you from your street driving that you don't drive within the the lanes. You now use all of the road, right? There's a there's kind of a different context. So the origin story of the product was um, doing Formula SAE at Auburn. There's a picture behind me you guys can see, not for audio consumption, but this race car right here. Yeah. You can kind of see which way mm-hmm. I'm worry on my finger. Yep, it's a Formula SAE car. And my business partner and I met at Auburn University doing Formula SAE. Uh, he's an engineer. Uh, I'm a, not an engineer. Uh, I have a degree in marketing. And I just wanted to be around race cars because that's what all I've ever wanted to do. Uh, and basically he came up with this idea because we had probably spent like, our team had a pretty decent budget. We probably spent $20,000 in the past year on, you know, Motec ECU and all the sensors that go along with everything you could possibly instrument in a race car. You know, we had damper velocities and wheel speeds and, you know, we were measuring the diff, you know, like everything. Right. And what do you do with like the, like you end up getting the car to the track, it breaks constantly. And then by the time you're finally driving it, the drivers just aren't getting everything out of the car. So all this information's really not that valid. Um, so he wanted to kind of simplify, like, how do I tell these engineers that are driving this car that they're not using all the car's capabilities? So he kind of went after solving that problem. And what he kind of came up with was what is something that represents, you know, the tire's potential, basically. Something that basically models accelerations um, and modifies them based on 
um, different things that you can measure through an accelerometer. Um, so like a nine axis accelerometer, uh, an IMU. Um, so with proper data filtering, you can measure camber, you can measure elevation, like you can tell if the track's going uphill or downhill. I mean, you can do that with a GPS, but but through the frequencies and the vibrations of the IMU, you can get a pretty good idea of if the track is cambered in this area or if it's downhill. And then he kind of built the logic for how that affects the tire's grip. Like when you're braking downhill, you have less grip. You're not going to achieve the same peak, you know, deceleration rate. Um, so all those things kind of came together to something that when he stuck it in my race car, he basically needed a full-size race car to test it on, and I'm the only guy who knew that had a race car. So I kind of got lumped in pretty early on. Um, so and the first several times we used it, it, nothing made any sense. I had no idea what this thing was all about. And then eventually I recorded like a GoPro behind me and was at Barber and my, actually my, my younger brother's E46 M3 that he still has now. It was mine at the time. And uh, I remember like going through turn two and three and like getting to the apex and going back to power. And like right before I felt that this, they're like 300 something treadwear street tires, right before I felt the tire like really start to scream and like, the car kind of want to pitch and, and yaw a little bit. I saw the last like red light disappear and turn green. And then the tire squeal started happening. And I replayed that moment probably 30 times on the camera. And I was like, this little thing, like what he's telling me is that like when the last red light turns green, that's all the tire has in it. And I watched this moment over and over again. And it kept telling me that that was like, that was exactly what I felt. Right. And that's when I was like, okay, I don't know what you've done. I don't know how you've done this, but obviously you know something that I like, you know exactly what my butt was telling me. And I'm not the end all be all, but I'm not slow at this point. I have some experience and I just want to be a part of it. Uh, and we kind of grew it from there and, and really ended up, and I'll save you like the whole story because I don't want to be stealing all the airtime, but um, we kind of ended up we kind of came into it going oh this real-time thing is going to be next level this is what everybody needs and i believed in it because i knew it worked but when we got into it I realized there's a bigger problem in the in the motorsports world with regard to data and that's just like hey why can't it needs to be easier like it needs to be easier to get quality data and that's the problem we're now trying to solve yeah um, so here we are three years later as somebody who's been using an aim solo for seven or eight years and still doesn't know how to use the software right. Um, yes, <laughs> we Should need to make one? it easy. Yeah, we need to make it easier. Uh, basically, I've learned things only to try to teach my my 15 year old daughter to look at data, and I stay just far enough ahead of her that that I can do it. But yeah, it's I've been using the same interface forever and have no idea what's going on. Yeah, that's that's interesting, so Andrew. I have have you guys had a fair number of uh, motorcycle racers use Apex Pro. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Can can I use this on a motorcycle? <laughs> so the the GPS data, yes, definitely. The um, like the real time element is definitely designed for a four wheeled vehicle. Like if you want to know when you're about to high side or low side, it's not going to help you with that. But you could use like the if you just want access to better, easier, simpler GPS information, then absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Fair. Yeah, but it's it, not. When you it said, doesn't when, know Viet motorcycle. No, when you when you said IMU, that was the thing. Is that was as soon as IMUs became cheap and available on motorcycles, that was the the biggest advancement because motorcycles. I don't know how the data guys use them properly on motorcycles. It's a mystery other than than getting 
you know, that's when the world started working. And so we like guys on bikes, that's kind of all we get is like good data is GPS data. Um, unless you move to things that cost individually way, way more than the motorcycles I own. Um, so yeah, I always ask everybody with data. I'm like, so can I use it on a bike? Cause I want to, when you use it on crappy little kids, dirt bikes that I ride around the track. So yeah. no, I've, I, you know, I, I grew up riding dirt bikes and I've, I've seen a, um, there are some products like specifically designed for motocross and some other things you can wear on your helmet and stuff. And it's all GPS based, but I'd be really intrigued with that, the value proposition of the market, but also understanding like how can IMU be adapted to present useful information? Cause there's a lot more going on when you incorporate lean angle in and right. know, different, right. different stuff. That's, you know, the dynamics are slightly different just because you have this kind of extreme pendulum situation now, but the, the basic physics are, you know, it's a tire, right? It's a rubber right. tire and, right. and the way that the tire grips, the surface is the same. Um, but that's something that people have asked a lot about that and carding and from a like a market perspective and like how the product is used those two products could be very similar because it has to be more rugged it has to have some like more weatherproofing there's like some very practical design elements that could share between those two markets but then you kind of would have to like our imu we works on a cart we have a, a handful of carding customers say a handful there's probably hundreds of them but I was going to say carts are the other guys. Everybody, you know, everyone who drives a cart it, with any seriousness has has data on the steering wheel, you know, more so than I know 10 guys who own data for their carts for every one guy I know who owns it in a car. So, yeah, those guys love it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's more of a culture there than that. Hopefully it will be one day. And I, and I also think there's an element of like competition breeds data usage as well. So the reason I got into data was because I was racing competitively and when I got to the, the I guess what you call the the pro level, right? It was my license said I was in a professional series. I wasn't being paid to do it. I was spending every dollar I could possibly find to do it. But um, professional, but nonetheless, you had to use Right. I mean, that's a whole nother. It's it's very similar to to Tom's story, except I didn't. I definitely did not do not have the talent and did not have the opportunities that he did. Um, and and he deserves more opportunities because he's still he he needs to be in a front running car in a pro series. But um, you learn to use data in that environment because you have to. Like you go take your data card over after every session to the compliance people, and you're like, here, this is so you know I'm not cheating. You know, so you you get accustomed to it very early in that environment. Whereas in kind of the the amateur and club level and HPDE world, data is kind of a big scary word for most people. Um, so it was interesting coming back from like only doing professional focused events for a couple of years and coming back into doing a lot more coaching and being at a HPDE kind of style event and being like, nobody uses data here. Like, it's, you know, it's kind of different. So I've been hearing you use some pretty high level um, car language as well as some pretty high level marketing language. So why is a marketing guy driving fast cars? Where, where does that intersection meet up? It's really kind of the other way around. Um, okay. Because I wanted to drive fast cars, I became a marketing guy. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and my, so my, my dad was in sales my whole life. He, he's in banking, and he sold, like, bonds and stocks and stuff to small banks. And so I was always around him selling stuff, but he was always very um, – he helped these small banks – banks 
organize their portfolios to mitigate risk and do all these things. So he's kind of like a consultant that like was real value added on the sales side. So my entire life sales was presented to me as like solving problems for helping people solve their problems. Mm. Right. And if I do that enough, I get paid a lot. Right. So I think I have like the backwards perspective of a lot of people whose only interaction with salespeople up until, you know, their adult life is like, I tried to buy a used car one time and that guy was a total idiot. Right. Yep. So I, I never had, and, and also my dad's a huge car guy. So I grew up going to the track. Um, I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, but we used to go to road Atlanta before Barber was built. And then I probably went to every race at Barber from the time I was 10 years old to, you know, pretty much to now. But, um, so I really just wanted to get into motorsports, and then I learned pretty early on that you have to have a lot of money to do that for obvious reasons. I think maybe I put two and two together earlier than some do. Like, hey, where does all the where do all these tires and brakes and these haulers that get the car to the track? Where does all this come from? Yeah. Um, so I started to pursue. <laughs> yeah, I pursued the sales and the marketing skill as I started getting really interested in motorsports and I realized that I have like, I have a bad addiction to this that's going to have to be fed and I can't afford to feed it. So how do I solve that problem? Um, and that was kind of how it, how it worked out. And what did you start driving? Like what was your first going, like you watched stuff at the track. What did you, what was the first thing that you were driving? It's like the first race driving car. Fast. Yeah. First race car I owned or like, um, yeah, just sort of like what, like what's your experience going from going from somebody who who grew up with their dad being into racing and going and watching events to I mean I'm sure you knew at, at 10, 11, 12 you wanted to drive things. So what was your first experience getting to drive those things? Yeah, so probably by the time I was like eight, I was asking my dad. You know, I've seen go karts, I've driven them at the beach. Like, let's go karting, and so he would always kind of like try to do that. But at the time, he was. He was a pilot. He's a pilot by training, but he got into banking. That's another interesting story. I thought everybody's dad like flew themselves to their meeting and all their other friends, you know. So he was flying corporate jets and doing stuff like that. So he he was really busy at the time where I was like wanting to get into karting, so that wasn't really an option for us. So the first event that I did was in my buddy uh, Griffin Burkett, who's still involved in the motorsports industry, in his Honda Civic at an autocross. I think I was seventeen, maybe sixteen, uh, and then the first race car I like bought drove was a car my dad and I bought it was a, a 74 Alfa Romeo GTV oh. uh, and it came oh, wow. with a it came with a second one for free because that's how Alphas <laughs> roll uh, yep. so that was where I really kind of cut my teeth on the basics of like it was a lot harder for me to prep the car to get it to the track than most because I was starting you know with an Alfa whereas most other people at the track were starting with something more substantial, but um, I learned a lot. I broke everything on the car imaginable, uh, and we by the time we sold it, it was it was we had it pretty well dialed and figured out. But um, that was kind of my formative experience. So actually, my first wheel to wheel race was in a vintage race in that car. Um, so it was a lot of fun. That's a heck of a first race car, man. Those are yeah. It was real cheap. It had holes in the floor rust um makes it lighter my dad always yeah my dad when anyone asked my dad about it he said it was a it was a formation of italian parts flying together it was like a it was not a cohesive (laughs) unit um but it was fun and uh it made more power than it should and it was on i think we ran 
the predecessor to the R7, I guess the R6 Hoosier on it, which was way too much tire for that chassis. I mean, yeah. way too much. It's probably so why you were breaking things. Yeah, yeah. I know, I know that now, looking back on it, I'm like, we should have been on some bias ply, shitty ass, just like, you know. Drifting everything. And you, at some point, you ended up in TC America driving some Hondas and things like that. How did how did you kind of weave your way from two Alfa Romeos to uh, spending all your money in a Pro Series? It's a really good question. I have to like deconstruct it in my head to even know. I've always been the kind of person that like get myself into stuff, you know, where I'm like, whoa, I jumped into this and now I've got to figure it out. Um, when I look, look back, a lot of it is just like saying yes to things that I didn't really know what I was committing to at the time. Um, so I had the Alpha. I sold the Alpha and bought a, or traded it basically. I think it was the trade for the Alpha plus five grand cash which was definitely not my money. That was definitely my dad's money to get this car, which is, you can't see it, but it's a, um, it was a Ford bodied stock car, which was an excellent trade. Cause we went from an unreliable piece of Italian junk to a, a tube frame as solid as you can possibly imagine. Safe American domestic. Like I can buy anything I need yeah. from Jegs for a hundred dollars. Uh, and that thing just ran really good. Actually, of course the first motor we did, the, mo- the first race we did, the motor blew up. So, perceived reliability again but um i went from that to having a lot of success in it fairly quickly at the club level and racing against a couple of really quick guys but more or less not a super super competitive class and kind of wanting to wanting to do something more competitive um and just figure out you know how do what do i do with this whole motorsports world so this was while while i was in college i was doing doing all this and um, I wasn't really, you know, I wanted to, I knew what I wanted to do very early on in college. So I was very focused on this motorsports path. So I started doing Formula SAE. So at the time in college, I would kind of worked myself into this position, even though I wasn't an engineer on the team, where I was kind of the, the test driver, like myself and my buddy Zach Woolen, who's now with uh, Honda Performance Development and works for IndyCar. Um, he's the chief trackside engineer for HPD for IndyCar. He was my co driver in the, in the formula SAE car and he's kind of our engine guru. So he, we made more power than anybody else. Uh, he figured out all this crazy stuff. We dropped our compression ratio into less aggressive cams, made more power cause we had to run a little bit of intake restrictor, all this really cool stuff that he figured mm-hmm. out that nobody was doing at the time. And, um, he was a really properly, properly quick driver. So I learned a lot from him, but we would just, we had some, a couple of really reliable formula SAE cars that we could just drive. So we would take them out to the, uh, the Auburn airport gave us keys. Crazy. I don't know what they were thinking. We could drive out, unlock the gate, set up cones on like a parking area and just drive the car. Um, it cost us nothing, you know, it was all university funding. All That's this. So, so cool. On like a Tuesday, I would skip class and go out to the airport and drive for three hours and look at data with Zach. And and then that weekend, I would leave on Friday because I'd schedule my classes so I could leave and I would go to Road Atlanta for the weekend and race the stock car. So I was I was getting a lot of repetition and a lot of exposure. Um, and the stock car was really cheap to race. You know, tires were 600 bucks a set. Um, so I bought those, you know, once a weekend and then it was like, breaks every other weekend, a bunch of fuel, and then travel. It was really pretty affordable. Um, so I was getting a pretty good bit of seat time. And then um, 
I started working on a pit crew for, we had a sponsor called APR, um, who is a Audi and Volkswagen performance. They're one of the big dominant Volkswagen Audi yeah. performance tuning operations. Um, if you saw their logo, you don't. They're, they're actually, I guess they're owned by, I'll get it wrong if I say it, but they're a sister company to Dynan now, who's like a BMW tuner. Yep. But they were based in, in Auburn, right outside of Auburn, Alabama, in Opelika. It's a small town. Uh, and uh, we were at Auburn University, so they used to like 3D print parts for us and like manufacture stuff for our race team. They'd let us use their dyno, all this cool stuff. So they had a race team at the time they were doing, um, you know, Continental Tire, and they had they were the first people to campaign an Audi R8 in North America. They ran it, ran it in Grand Am in 2013. So I ended up volunteering to do the Roar Before the 24 test with them, and that turned into holding the fire bottle for the number 51 Audi R8 in Grand Am in 2013, and that turned into a full season offer to fuel one of the continental tire cars getting paid which was like oh that's cool yeah so now i'm getting paid to be on the pit crew um and that turned into the their motorsports operation folded they decided to get out of it they had change of management in the company wanted to go a different direction all this other stuff they got bought out by a private equity firm and all their motorsports stuff was for sale and long story short i ended up buying all of it uh, sold my truck. I had a really awesome Ram 2500 that my wife hates hearing about because she doesn't like Dodges because she doesn't understand the value of a straight six versus a V8. But we'll talk about that. <laughs> That's like a deeply rooted conversation between us. So I sold everything that I had to sell and I bought all this really cheap motorsports stuff, which is exactly like racing junk to the T. I mean, it was all garbage. Um, but I had two Volkswagen GTIs, a spare chassis, a bunch of motors. All this stuff was like 30 grand. It was like as cheap as you can possibly imagine to get a bunch of used professional race car stuff that were super cheaty and made way too much power and all this wild stuff. So now I'm like, my dad and I own all this crap. What am I going to do with it? I don't have enough money to field any of it. Like I own it now. What am I going to do? So that was how we ended up in World Challenge. So we kind of put together through some very gracious friends through some legitimate sponsorship through, you know, legitimate, I don't have to, through some sponsorship through, um, selling rides. Like people would come out to barber and we'd let them, you know, hop in the car and, and people would just basically like donate to the race team to help buy tires. That's cool. Um, we made it to like two races in 2015 with those cars and they just like flew apart, like spectacularly, like wheel bearings coming apart as they crossed our finish line, <laughs> you know, like at the end of the race. But they were really fast. They were they were faster in a straight line. Like we got penalties for overboosting twice. I think at Road America. But um, yeah, so that's how that kind of started. And then the Honda thing. There's a Honda plant in Alabama, and they had built the Accord, the ninth generation Accord, 2013 to whatever. I don't remember what the top year is, but 2013 and on Accord had been homologated for World Challenge touring car. And they approached me and said, we know you're based locally. It would make a lot of sense if you ran an Accord because we could offer you some support. You know, we have this whole suite of sponsors that are helping us with parts and, um, you know, suspension partner, exhaust partner, all this cool stuff. You know, all you need to do is sell all your stuff and buy an Accord. And, you know, I was like, yeah, that sounds like a great yeah. idea. Let's do that. <laughs> I'll spend so my that's money. That's how I ended up with the, yeah, it's only money. It's, you know, it wasn't my money. I'm like, let's figure it out, right? Yeah, we had uh, we had Carl Hurdle on a few weeks ago, who works at 
uh, Honda Motorsports and or Honda. Ridden in the right seat with Carl. Yeah, a couple of times. He's a he's a great guy. Yeah, Carl's cool. Very red hair. Very. Uh, he spent a lot of time driving their MDX. The first time I rode on track with Carl was in an Acura MDX with like six piston Brembos. Yeah. And we could like get a point by going into a tight 90 degree hairpin corner that most people are breaking at the three board and go to the one and just freaking stand the thing on the nose and just park it. Like, we're going 20 miles an hour now. You know? He he is good under brakes no matter what he drives. And yeah, that, that RDX, the... You know, everyone likes to hear about the Odyssey. Those cars, he drives those cars, those vehicles faster than they they deserve to go. But it's spectacular to watch. Yeah, they did the one lap in their in their Turbo Odyssey a while back. Yeah, and then it went up Pikes Peak not too long after that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I owe a lot to those guys. They um, the guy who used to run their kind of race team um, before Carl was in a more senior position. Carl was kind of more of a volunteer i guess on that like entry level you know he just started i think carl had just moved here he wasn't he wasn't hadn't lived in alabama very long um but i basically fielded an identical car to theirs and we padded together at all the events and shared resources and oh nice you know they gave me transmissions and all sorts of i mean it was great it was it was a really they made um professional racing a viable option for me as opposed to it just the only reason i was able to keep doing it you know it was just this actually makes a little bit of financial sense as far as like we're doing it for less than anybody else it yeah. doesn't make financial sense in any other measure of the word but um, we were very frugal and did pretty well in some cases not not on the podium but close so you've kind of you've talked about the fact that you kind of just say yes and figure it out in the aftermath you just, you know, sell your truck if it needs to get sold, you'll figure it out. And we're that's I, I'm a I'm asking the question because that is not who I am as a human being. I like to think of all the all the implications and like the three different possibilities and like the permutations like trickling down from there. So how how are you that optimistic that it's like i'm just gonna do this and you know it'll it'll kind of just work out i i don't know i think it's a i you know i think we're all a product of our environments and our upbringings and who we've been around and um both of my parents are big time optimists um and they're both you know just I can make a positive thing out of any situation, no matter what happens. And, and I think a lot of it is from that. And I think a lot of it's like a genuine curiosity of like just wanting to learn. Like I, I know, I know that about myself that that is a little, that is not everybody like, and it shouldn't be, it just, it really shouldn't be like my, my wife is the opposite and it's a really good thing for me. Um, cause it balances me out a little bit. Um, and it's, it's, you know, there's a lot of times where I envy people like you, Scott, that have that, like, methodical approach to decisions where you think don't through everything and I, I do think through a lot of things when I make decisions I just I just think about it with the spin of like ooh, I can do something with this right um, and it, and I have to hold myself back a lot of times because when you're running a business too that can be really really that can be very dangerous right you in certain situations you have to just jump in with both feet head first and just make it happen um, from a business perspective and then there's other times where you really need to be very methodical about decision making, which is something that I'm working on. So 
I don't actually know why I'm that way though. It's it's a um, I, I've never known how to be another way. I've always been very convicted with what I've wanted to be as well, like as a person. So like when I was probably uh-huh. 11, I like cornered my mom and I was like, I want to be an actor. You know, like I was like 11. <laughs> you know, I knew what the rest of my life was going to be, and of course that like I I like joined a I went to like a bunch of these like camps and like. Um, did a bunch of acting stuff. I tried out for a bunch of plays and joined like a um, uh, like an acting agency. I tried out for a Disney show. Didn't wow. even get the first callback, but did a bunch of stuff like that. And then I was like, no, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to play in a band. I'm going to be in a band in high school. That's what I'm going to do. And so halfway through high school, I was like, I'm going to run for class president. I want to be a politician. I'm going to be class president. Mm-hmm. I got elected class president. I was like, nope, this isn't for me. I don't know about this. So I've always, I've always been very convicted. Yeah. So I, I really don't know, honestly. It's like my, my style's just always been dive in for better or worse and, and figure it out. Well, it sounds like an interesting combination to be a race car driver, though. That's that conviction and that confidence of jumping in going for something even if it's in a particular corner to make a move that you know there, there's certainly i'm sure a little bit of experience and calculation there too but just going for something with the confidence that yeah i can handle this i i mean it sounds like a pretty formidable thing to have on tap on the track yeah, I think so. I think um, I think all race car drivers struggle with confidence, though, no matter how self-confident you are, because it's such a humbling, it's such a humbling thing, and you can scare yourself so easily. So even though, and I've I've really realized that recently, even though I haven't naturally, I have a lot of self-confidence, I am also pretty self-deprecating, and I can that can be bad in the race car as well. Like you really all like confidence. The way I think about it, confidence is always a good thing. Ego is bad. Confidence is good, right? Mm. Too much confidence is not a bad thing. It's, it's like a, when the ego starts getting involved and your emotions start to overtake the confidence that you have built from, you know, logical real events, then that's when you have trouble. So I still have to, I still have to respect that I have to build up my own confidence in the race car because I'm really not ascended into a corner kind of driver at all. Like I, I'm just not. I, I have not had a lot of car to car contact. Um, in my driving at all, like probably, probably I'd imagine less than most people who have as much wheel to wheel time as I do. Yeah. Don't, um, don't apologize for that. Kind of like came up with, you know, what's that? Don't apologize for that. Um, yeah, I, I thought it was interesting. Lester posted something in, um, one of the Facebook groups, just asking what everybody's, what's one corner that you do that you feel like you get right most of the time or that you feel like you're really good at. And it's really interesting reading through the responses because most people really have a hard time of kind of owning what they're good at. Even if there's still room for growth, even if, you know, they're not perfect. A lot of people like, you know, they're making jokes about, you know, the one corner I feel like I always get right is turn two at Road America. Which, if you've ever been to Road America, it's is, not a turn. It's not yeah. a turn, <laughs> or turn four <laughs> at Road America. It's not a turn. It's not a turn. The cheese like, bridge. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a five degree maybe kink in the road, um, but there's just 
it's and it was really interesting to me like for for such a weird wide group of people that the car community and the race car community specifically are that more people just aren't able to be like you know what i may not be perfect but i feel like i'm pretty good at this yeah i think i think you couldn't be more right there so something something i've started to use a lot when i get hired to coach is asking that exact question it's like hey what part of your game you know game being when you're on track when you're in the mental mode you know could be preparation could be driving could be debriefing what are you really good at like what are you good enough at that you can draw confidence from that and most people i have to give them like a week to answer it you know like i'll email a coaching client that and ask him that question i'll be like don't respond like don't feel like you have to respond now because this is not an easy and i give them some examples to make it here's some examples you might be good at you know your your brake release might be beautiful right you might be a ballerina off that brake pedal and you can have soft toes and just kind of whoop, come right off the brake right and do whatever you want with the nose of the car not everybody has that skill if that's you raise your hand and tell me um and it's hard to do and i had that problem for a very long time and i also had that problem like personally from like a what am I good at like in business? What am I good at in life? And I'm super extroverted. I'm very, I kind of always saw that my need to be around others and talk and process my thoughts out loud was like a negative thing. Hmm. Um, and so I never saw that as a positive that I am good around people and I can communicate my ideas clearly and I can process things. I can think through thoughts by communicating. Re- real quick, where, where did you get the idea that that was a negative thing? Uh, I think I'm just kind of self-deprecating. Like I just thought, I don't see other people doing this all the time. Like I was, I was actually having this conversation with my business partner right before we started talking. I was like, in in school, I'm taught that like a teacher calls, you know, calls on me, asks a question, and I've been listening. I've been making notes. I've been following along. Like I want to get an A. They ask me a question, and my natural response would be to ask a question back, because I don't necessarily understand exactly what they want me to present. So I would ask a question, or I would. I need to have a conversation before I can clearly communicate my answer. And I think in school you're kind of taught that that's like, no, you just need to think about it and then present an answer. And I'm like, well, I don't get a lot done if it just spins around in my head. Mm-hmm. I have to say it, hear myself say it, go, oh, that sounded stupid. Think about it, say it again. And to me that's always been a negative thing in my mind until recently I've learned that like, no, that some people work that way. Yeah. Right. That's, that's interesting that you had, uh, that you got the notion and this is talk about the root of our evolutionary psychology the you know that if we're different in any way that's automatically perceived as being a negative thing Um, that's the evolutionary psychology idea that if if you're different in any way the herd or the pack will kick you out and you will die because you you don't have the protection. You don't have all this stuff around you. And how in just subtle ways like being in school and not being like the other kids can produce this a fear of being different and automatically perceived as being negative, being a bad thing. So did you change the way? Like how did you come to kind of embrace that as not only something you were good at, but something that that you could actually embrace and call your own. 
Yeah. Um, honestly, I, we're getting kind of deep, but I appreciate you coming with us. No, well, I've, I've listened. You know, I've listened to the podcast, and I appreciate the spin. <laughs> it's kind of more because I, I spend a lot of time talking about mental stuff with coaching clients and with Apex Pro customers because it's it's super important to understand how. I don't know necessarily how your brain works, but to understand how you process thoughts and what kind of learner you are yes. and all these different things. But I think I kind of adapted more or less to like, um, I just had to be okay with, I'm not going to sound as smart as the other kids. If I just have to regurgitate an answer that I think is correct. But if I were to have, I could have a very intelligent conversation about it. Um, or I could go like stand in front of a mirror and talk about it to myself for a few minutes and come back and present something that would sound really good. But it had to be verbal, had to be out loud. Yeah. 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 It had to be like, I have to, I have to talk out loud in order to complete a thought. I can have rudimentary thoughts in my head, but I have to, I have to verbalize them. Hmm. My wife calls, calls me an external processor. So she just like gets used to like, I get home, she says nothing. I talk for half an hour and then we move on. Right. And I go like, while I'm saying stuff, I'll stop myself and I go, Ooh, I need to write that down. Right. Or like, and if you're listening and you're like, am I that way? And you want to know, like, when you're on a long road trip by yourself, what's the first thing do you do? Do you just pop up music and listen to music or pop up a podcast and listen to it? Or do you just like call somebody on your phone? You know, cause like what I end up doing is I'll, I'll start listening to a podcast or something and like 20 minutes into my trip. I'll go, I don't know. I need to like interact or you know, something. Right. And I just open my phone and look at the most recent and I just hit it. Right. Cause I'm driving. I don't want to be distracted. I just hit the most recent call and I just call some random person I've talked to recently and just, have conversation that's a fun game yeah it it works really well for me because it like the the trip goes by faster but i realize that like that's my natural tendency is that i want to converse you're helping me explain a couple people in my life right now a really good friend of mine (laughs) who randomly calls me from the road Uh, that and also my my oldest son i've been raising him for almost 18 years now and you just made a couple things clear about how he interacts with us um, that I've never heard anybody else say out loud. Um, so it would have been nice to know when he was like six or eight, but I know him today, so that's... <laughs> right, sorry I couldn't have been there. <laughs> no, it's it's just yeah, like, like you say, there's not... I don't think there's as many people who interact with the world quite like you do. And and like you said, in school, they, they sort of... I don't want to say they beat that out of you, but you're, that's not how you're supposed to... Uh, yeah. It's really not how you're supposed to interact with teachers, with, with other adults, to have a questioning conversation with them when you're eight or nine years old when they just asked you for an answer. That's not what they're looking for. Um, and my son has certainly struggled with that because that's how he answers questions, right? He answers questions with the conversations. He doesn't just answer the question. He wants to talk to you. And I have sat in the principal's office with him because, <laughs> because of those things. And um, it's, it, like you say, it's been, it's been a negative. And um, now that he's out in the world and he's working and he's interacting with people in a work environment, those same traits are becoming a significant positive to him as he, as he deals with the people that come into his shop and he deals with, you know, he deals with a lot of shipping and receiving. And so he talks to people all day and sorting problems out verbally, um, is working fantastically for him and he's thriving in, in that environment. So, um, it's fascinating. You're the, you're, you're the first person I've ever heard talk out loud about the same thing. So, uh, thank you. I gained a lot from this show already. We, sh- we should do a podcast with 
one person from each different type of learning and have a conversation about one specific topic and just see see where it goes yeah i think that'd be fascinating (laughs) so that's a great idea so with with kind of your journey and how you've kind of gone from the i don't belong and this is bad to well this is just who i am to actually embracing this as like this is who i am and it's good that i am this way and knowing kind of that you're not like everybody that you process things differently that uh, the way that you interact with the world is not the way everyone interacts with the world. How has that awareness and that journey for you enabled you to be a better instructor? Because I think that's something I don't hear a whole lot about, even from some of the like elite level coaches out there, is ad- adapting your coaching style to how your client or student needs to be taught? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I mean, I, mean, I think honestly, I, I still, we, we all lean towards our best strength. So I still lean towards kind of the auditory, like I'm going to explain this concept to you until you understand it. And I've had to learn, particularly as I've done a lot more coaching and um, just that's just become such a big part of my life. I've had to learn that sometimes certain people just want kind of a declarative statement that answers their question, yes. and then they they need silence to process it. So being married to my wife, who's an introvert and processes internally, has taught me that. Um, growing up with my younger brother, who's an introvert and processes internally, has taught me that. So I kind of lean on those experiences when I identify somebody as that type of person. Um, or, you know, someone that's an engineer or a more analytically brained person needs those kind of more black and white bounds. And then we kind of have to work into, cause driving, like performing driving on the track is an art. The things that make it up are a science, right? Like there is a way to drive a car fast, but everybody kind of gets there differently, right? Just because there is a way to drive the car fast, which some people might not agree with. I'd love to hear from you if you disagree with that, but there's a, there's a fast way to drive a car, period, right? But getting there is different for everyone, and that means that our perceptions of how you drive a car fast are vastly different, like incredibly different. Yes. But there's a one, conc- like the data looks very similar between people, two people that think they're doing two different things and they're driving the car almost as fast as it can possibly go. Um, that's That's fascinating. So... I think, um, so I was not naturally inclined to data when I first started using a data system. Uh, I had buddies of mine that were really proficient drivers that helped me understand it. Um, Mikey Taylor, who won IMSA Pilot Challenge at Daytona, Robbie Foley qualified on pole for the Rolex 24. Those are two of my closest friends when I was, because they were both in my social circle at Auburn from, like I was around these guys that are now both paid professional drivers that were helping me understand data. So I've gotten so much exposure to it that I can speak that language. And I think that's really helped me communicate with people who are more numbers driven or more visual and want to see a representation of what I'm doing. Um, which I think we all, you know, we're all, we all have, you know, auditory, visual, kinesthetic learning types. It's just some one is more dominant than the others. Hmm. Um, and then, when I meet another person that has a similar learning style to me, which is kind of heavy auditory and kinesthetic, um, 
it, it really makes it easy for me to communicate concepts. Um, so I've learned something that I think in a lot of, if you're an HPDE instructor, you know, particularly you can learn from is um, saying something once one way, just because you understand it and that's how you verbalize it does not mean that person understands it. They might've heard those words, but if you say, you know, break now, what some people hear is come off the gas and break, right? If you say accelerate to this point, they might hear something completely different, right? So I always challenge myself to say stuff three different ways. Like if I'm going to say one concept, if I'm talking about weight transfer, I'm like, you know, use the brakes, right? Go to the brakes, attack the brakes, apply the brakes, whatever different word, some word might trigger something in someone's brain based on a past experience or whatever. It might make more sense. So mm. I think that's a big thing that I've learned because I learned from kind of storytelling, auditory communication, kinesthetic of like relating something to what I feel in the car. Those are my primary like learning styles. Um, so if someone uses a different word, it can be very powerful for me. Um, so I try to communicate that to people. And then also, you know, like I think everybody learns from being driven, like being in the right seat and having someone that can execute like technically correct driving, drive the car, which in motorcycles is harder to do, but lead follows a little easier. Right. So, right. Um, I'd like to see you I try. Think that's a, yeah. And then I've also, you know, I've also like had clients that have asked me to drive their cars and do kind of a data lap and like do everything right and help them feel it. And they, what they get out of it is like totally different than what I'm trying to explain. I'm like, feel the car do this right. And the tire kind of squirms and you're like, I'm wanting them to get that. And they're like, Oh, you were two feet further to the left there. You know? And I'm like, that's not what I was yeah. trying to, you know, but horse I've learned a lot. Meet some that. water. If, if you want some, you know, it's right. when I used to be a water ski instructor. Um, it's a glorious uh, year and a half of my life. Um, did not make much money. Anyway, when you were mentioning like just even in the verbal aspect of how people learn and how different words can mean the same thing to you, but to that person, like you have to use a different word to get the same concept. There's one thing in um, one of the biggest things I taught was competitive slalom skiing. So it, essentially what I found is that to do the same physical motion that I wanted to see as people went across the wakes is it could be squeeze your butt, it could be hips up, shoulders back, chest up, and it would all be describing the same thing. But if I just used the right word, all of a sudden that would somehow make sense to them and they would just be able to do it then. And it would be a process of trying to figure out okay, what word is this? And then going on dry land and having them, you know, just pull on a tree and having me physically like push their butts forward and like roll their shoulders back. And sometimes it's like, okay, do you feel that? And you see their eyes and it's like, oh yeah, that's what you've been talking about. It's just a little harder to do, but I mean, that's your, that's your example for the right seat. Having people sit right seat is you're trying to instill a feeling in them and be able to correctly identify that that's something Seth and I talked about. And the true thing is that um, part of what data does is that it helps you to correctly identify or more accurately, maybe is a better way to describe more accurately identify what your body is feeling. Because sometimes what we perceive as being fast could just be drifting around a corner because it feels fast, but that's not the fastest way. 
So doing that kind of comparison helps you to do better. Yeah, on, on the on the topic of data and, and like really leveraging it, I really commonly share with people that the most powerful way, in my opinion, to use data is to calibrate yourself to it because it doesn't. Yeah, that's good. It, it is a binary input, right? It, it knows what's fast and what's not. It, that's all it does, right? It just records information. You can kind of, once you learn some basic data analysis techniques, you can figure out what's fast and what's not. But what you really need to be able to do is you need to be like, oh man, this like hockey stick shape on the speed trace where I'm trailing off the brake into the corner is obviously the fastest way to carry entry speed and get the car rotated. It's a really nice trail brake release, yada, yada, yada. That might not feel fast in the car. It might not feel whatever your previous experience and your butt is telling you feels quick, right? What might feel quick is just like popping off the brake. The front end comes up in there. You wait for a second. The car's all over the place because the weight's all over. Tires squeal. You go to the power and you cowboy the exit. Like, whoa, using all the curb. Cool. It's like, yeah, great. But it wasn't fast. Um, so if you can properly calibrate your butt and your eyes and your inputs to what the data says is fast, then you have a really powerful ability to you know, deliver a, a really technically properly driven car, right? Um, yeah. And, you know, leverage physics to go fast. Yeah, it's almost a leap of faith somewhere in there. It's like you have to be willing to put your faith and your blind trust that the data knows best and that you have to be willing to go where the data is leading you if you want the result that you think is going to come. So it's like if this trail braking feels super lame, but it's fast, if you have given your trust over to this data and you are willing to go where it leads you, you have to mentally say, okay, this doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel fast, but I'm going to do it trusting that it does. And it's almost that fake it till you make it that you have to just keep doing it until eventually after your 50th lap of doing it, you just naturally identify that as something that makes you go fast, is something that is fast. Yeah, you recalibrated yourself. You changed your mental model to, to what really is fast. Mm. Yeah, mm. that's probably what I spend most of my time doing is, is helping people correct and recalibrate their behaviors or maybe their misunderstanding of the fundamentals of driving. Because like, when you're an advanced driver or rider, right? Whatever you're doing, golf. I mean, when you're advanced, really, it's not advanced. It's just a higher understanding and a better execution of the a better execution of the fundamental skills, right? Like all the fundamentals still apply. You're not like doing something that, you know, Lewis Hamilton. Like I hear this all the time from, um, like Ross Bentley talks about, uses this exact example, and yeah. I, I have it burned in my head because I, I learned a lot from Ross and he says, you know, Lewis Hamilton doesn't drive with his nose, you know, he uses his hands and his feet like the rest of us. Right. You know, there's, he's not doing something that there's like a secret that if he tells you, you're like, Oh, I'm going to be a seven time champion if I do that. Right? And he makes mistakes the all case. the time. All those professional level guys, they, they make the same number of mistakes say on any given lap that any one of us does. They're just able to process that and recover quicker, make it more subtle, or even see it coming before it even gets there. Yeah, most of them are in flow state very 
soon as well. Like they're in the zone. They can trigger the zone willingly, like when they put their mind to it. And that's a big sign of like a, a professional athlete is the fact that they can, they have a lot of mental control and they can go, okay, I need to execute a qualifying lap. I have a trigger word that I use. Mine personally is focus. I just say it out loud in the helmet three times, like focus, focus, focus. And then I don't have any other choice but to be in the zone, right? That's just what I do. I can't do it if I'm not, if there's not real pressure either. Like I can't do it at a track day. I can't force myself to be in the zone. If there I'm has not to be something there. at stake. Right. But really good professional athletes can do that. They can like put themselves in the zone so that now their conscious thought is a few steps ahead of what they're actually performing, what their skill set's actually doing. So on a qualifying lap, they may, may be thinking how what happened in last corner is going to impact two or three sectors down the track, right? Or they might be thinking about like in Formula One and IndyCar, they can control sway bars and brake bias and stuff. And you'll see them twisting dials and changing stuff. And they'll be like, you know, at Indy, Indy 500, fascinating to watch qualifying because they'll be going, they'll be tracking out of turn two and they'll be like, ooh, I'm going to change the bar a little bit because the wind shifted. You know, know, or something like they have that high that speed oval driving in. is way harder than we give it credit for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Indy 500 qualifying is freaking fascinating when you really like research and understand what the tools the driver can manipulate, like how much the wind affects the run, like how they recognize, like they know where all the wind socks are around the track and they recognize when, I mean, like that stuff, you're like, you can't be in the zone. You can't not be in the zone and do that. So those guys at a very high level as a, as a pro athlete have to be able to go into that flow state where they're not consciously doing anything. They're everything's being performed subconsciously and their brain is like playing out the chess game. So being a coach instructor, kind of data guy yourself, how do you handle yourself on a track weekend? So um, while I can say that you and I raced together at NOLA, you were kind of up there and I was, you know, more towards the middle somewhere. Um, but when you're just driving and racing and things like that, and Seth is probably going to laugh at me because that'll go back to my psychology <laughs> as well. Um, <laughs> but, um, when you're just racing and you're doing a track weekend, how do you manage yourself as a driver who I assume doesn't have a coach of your own on most given weekends. Yeah, that's a good, that's a, again, lots of good questions, but, uh, probably not as well as I should, honestly. Um, I'm, I tend to be too emotional and, and, uh, when I'm really invested in my own racing, I need to be less emotional. Um, I've certainly like reeled that in over the years. Um, where I have a lot more control over my, over my emotions and over my, um, you know, my actual performance, uh, but emotional, how, if I can ask, just like allowing circumstances to affect my, my, like to get frustrated by another driver or to get frustrated by the fact that usually it's by the fact that I don't do something as well as I thought I should, or I don't recognize something in the data soon enough and make a change, or I don't recognize that I, um, we went two clicks. Two, two clicks stiffer on the shocks for the last race at NOLA. It was the wrong direction, way too stiff. Car was bouncing, too much rebound. It was just all over the What's place. Like, I knew better than that. I knew better. Like, I knew it going into it. That's I a, just wanted to do it anyway. Well, that's a self-deprecating thing that you were talking about earlier. 
So I don't I don't control my that self-deprecating side well enough. And then I also don't take enough time to do a subjective debrief when I get out of the car. Like I really need to grab a notepad and a track map and just write down the first thing that comes to mind before I talk to anybody. Like like if, if we're out on track racing together, Scott, and we have a nice little scrap and you come in and the first thing I talk about is like, hey, that was awesome. Like all of a sudden my mind has gone away from yeah. like, what I really needed, the the thoughts and the feelings that I really needed to get down on. You, you default to your, um, uh, oh my gosh, my brain just died. Um, intro extroverted self. You just want to go hug people and talk. Yeah. So after every race at NOLA, I would like went over to like Luke and like the MX five guys were right next to me, their trailer. And we're just like talking and having a good time. And I'm like, you know, I really should have been making some notes because I know, like I know the I know there's some low hanging fruit with tire pressures and shock settings that I'm not figuring out, you know. But um, that's probably the the biggest thing. I've learned a lot of the mental. I I, I can definitely say that I implement the mental side of it um, fairly well without a coach. But if I were if I had a no holds barred professional budget, I would still be hiring a coach. Like building that into the budget because being coached is different than being instructed being coached is like having someone that goes through the journey with you and sees things that you by default can't see because you're you so like there's no shame in and i've heard people talk about it like i need a coach like while i'm still learning it's like nope fernando alonso needs a coach like we all we all need a coach because it's a yes. it's it's we're not being taught the basics we're being we're having somebody that's recognizing our behavior and helping us you know get the most out of our our own tendencies um, but it's a really good practice. The reason that I did GLTC at NOLA and I'll be racing at NCM is finding time to invest in myself because I spend so much time trying to dissect other people that sometimes I forget that I have to learn and go through the same process myself so that I can relate and really draw back other people's experiences and have a common shared experience from going through the same thing myself. I think it makes me a better coach. Um, so yeah, basically to answer your question, I I don't listen to my own advice as well as I should, uh, but I definitely can execute on a much higher level than say even three or four years ago when I didn't have the experience with, you know, I see so many drivers data. I see so many, I hear so many people talk about driving that I, I've kind of assimilated what's good and what's bad, you know, kind of mentally. Like it's it's a little easier for me than probably the average person to to figure out how to drive quickly quickly right yeah. <laughs> for lack of better terms because i have that exposure in that environment around me well and i kind of wondered and i think you largely answered this is kind of the for you specifically because you you're so wrapped around data's the business and um just knowing so much about it and interacting with other people and yourself but the notion that to get out a piece of paper and a pen and like as soon as you get out of the car put it put something down like get your thoughts out before reaching out to the outside to a coach to data to anything else what do you see the benefit of that is it's the raw, unfiltered, completely subjective information that we may later overlook as being 
I'm just a driver. I make excuses or I'm just like, if you feel that there's something wrong with the car, make a note about what you felt, right? If you, if you, um, if you start talking to somebody, they're going to let, like every time you talk to your crew chief or your mechanic or whoever's helping you prep the car, like we all have those people. It might just be a friend that's also running his car that's helping you out. That person's going to be biased towards you as the driver can always do something different. But in your mind, like Scott, if you know, like, Hey man, my sway bar was binding up. Like I felt it. I knew it. And someone else is like, no, nah, man, it's probably just your head. You're blah, 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 blah. And you're like, no, no, no. I knew if you don't write that down right away and like get that, that kind of information off your chest, it's, it's going to be very hard to, to put that ammunition together to go get something done and work positively towards making the car better. Cause like you can't discount, the value of your raw emotion and your raw, like, like all data doesn't have to be completely objective. You need the driver, like the driver still has to turn the wheel and you need to know what the car felt like. Like you need to make notes on, I, I try to just, and there's not a, everybody does this differently. There's not a magic number to it, but, or a magic answer, but I try to just kind of get a general sense and kind of write down, like, what does the car feel like when I brake? What does it feel like on turn-in? What does it feel like when it's loaded mid-corner? What does it feel like on exit, right? Is it getting away from me in any of those phases? Is it doing any of that predictably? Is it doing anything unpredictably? Is it doing anything differently when I turn right than when I turn left? And those are the kinds of things I get down on paper. Um, and then, like, at NOLA, turn six and seven was the only part of the track that every time I came off the track, I was like, oh, I haven't figured it out. Like, I don't know what to do. Those so are, I'd be making that note. Those are nasty, weird corners. <laughs> Ambiguous. Yeah. Just like, where do I put the car? There's a lot of asphalt. And I don't know where to go. Have you Have you been to Autobahn? I haven't driven Autobahn. Okay. There's, I looked at a lot of data. So the same track designer did NOLA, did Autobahn South, and turn six at NOLA is turn six at Autobahn. And it's really obnoxious. Um <laughs> But, but I feel like Nola taught me some things that maybe I can bring back to Autobahn this next time around. So That's good. Do you feel like it taught you anything for NCM coming up in a month or so? Um, there's so many turns at NCM. Um, definitely. I mean, the, the high-speed S's at Nola are unlike anything I've personally done. I've never been to Road Atlanta, so I don't know those. Um, but just the high – like fast transitions but high speeds you don't get that in many places on many tracks and it's almost kind of like a beginner level because it's all flat your sight lines are really good um, but where you place the car on those s's is really crucial and can really help or hurt you um, and just being able to trust uh, my car in those quick transitions and those higher speeds um, I think definitely kind of will hopefully give me, you know, some of that more confidence that you were talking about is, you know, wanting to be an actor. So maybe I'll, uh, pretend like I'm a race car driver. All right. I, I spent a lot of time talking with drivers about, and I saw a Facebook thread about it today and had to, someone was posting their data from the uphill S's of VIR and I had to chime in cause there's kind of, a, um, I feel like it's not really taught in the HVD system, like how weight transfer is scaled and it's different at speeds like how your inputs with the car to produce weight transfer is different when you're going fast than it is when you're going slow like in an autocross environment like you can saw the wheel you gotta attack the pedals right you gotta manipulate the chassis right? you gotta give it everything it's got you only have 40 miles an hour worth of momentum 
right? But yeah. going into turn five at NCM, where we'll be in a, in a month and a half, you're, we're going to be going 105 miles an hour. The minimum speed's probably 100, right? Yep. Like, there's no braking involved there. You just got to figure out when do I coast? When do I come off the gas? How much steering input? How much does my steering input slow the car down? When do I get back on the power? And we're not really taught how to approach those corners. Um, no. From yeah. a fundamental perspective, like get on the power early, real early, right? We're not taught that. Yeah. That was, and that was something, again, talk about program, like proper programming that I had to learn in the Miata. Uh, when it was still on stock suspension and crappy alignment and crappy tires and all that kind of stuff is the car settles itself under power, which is like counter to everything I learned in street driving. And it's like, if you're, especially on a high speed, like Gingerman, um, eight, nine, that left, that left hand complex. Like if you're not under power, the car gets really squirrely. And so oddly enough, like throttle is almost a safe you don't have to be like flooring it but you have to be under power to have everything calm down and i've had other i talked on other shows about the thing that i'm scared of is the most is the most common word i use but the the thing i'm most apprehensive about um, the bigger a track gets is the dynamics of the car at speed. I always say I'm I'm afraid of the faster corners. And I think that comes from just, like you say, a lack of understanding. I really understand how a car behaves doing basically anything below 60 miles an hour. If it's yeah. autocross speed, I am 100%, I'm, I'm in my comfort zone. But anything between, anything where I'm turning the car maybe over 85 miles an hour, 85 to 100 miles an hour, I just the dynamic like you said the, the dynamics are different right like the the weight transfers I mean weight transfer is still weight transfer but how you do stuff is different and because I'm outside my comfort zone there I have never become never been comfortable with with that speed regime on track and that's still my weak point so I need you to coach me and do that sort of stuff so I can so I can stop when I do it, when I accidentally find myself going the right speed and doing right through there, it feels fine, but I can't do it on purpose yet. Mm. Yeah, that's, I think, you know, you're certainly not the only, like, that is a very, very common sentiment, like, that we're sharing right now, that, like, high speed, I'm not comfortable in high speed corners because the, I just don't, I just don't think anybody in the HPDE classrooms around the world are teaching, there are, everybody's teaching weight transfer as regard, at a, you know, hitting the brake pedal shifts the weight over the nose, right? But they don't talk about how at 100 miles an hour when you come off the gas, the weight transfers to the front really fast, right? Because yep. all of a sudden the arrow's pushing the front of the car down and you have more momentum, so it's easier to compress the springs, which means it's easier to put the tire into the ground. So like as momentum increases, you have to you don't have to give the car as much input to create the weight transfer, right? It just naturally happens. So that whole idea and understanding of like momentum and inertia and how it affects weight transfer, I think is not communicated. And so that mm. makes it hard to, you know, you, you don't trail off the brake into a hundred mile per hour corner, right? You speed check way early and you're usually on gas on the throttle at turn in, turn in. right? It's, it's kind of the goal in that, in that scenario. Right. And if you, if you do have to manipulate the car, it's like a little lift off the gas, like a partial lift. Or it's a quicker hands instead of a smooth hands. It's a little more a little more wheel while you're on the gas to keep the to keep the chassis settled. 
So I think a, a really big difference that I see between, and I was, I was looking at a, a video, I'm coaching some drivers this weekend at Barber for the WRL race. I've got some good friends of mine that have hired me for the full season in World Racing League. It's been a blast, but they're, nice. um, they're coming to Barber, and I was looking at some like benchmark data from another driver and comparing that with you know, drivers who, um, a pro driver versus a non-pro driver, right? And where the difference is. And the difference is always in corners faster than 60 to 80 miles per hour, right? Or faster. That's where the difference always is. And it's because the pro drivers just are more confident that the, they can give the car more assertive inputs at higher speed and it won't do something crazy on them. Mm-hmm. Um, or they're confident that I can, I need to, like a barber, there's a left-right kink and you enter it more than 100 miles per hour, your minimum speed's about 95, and then the following straightaway, you're up to 120. So it's like a little adjustment. The slower driver's speed check on the way in, in a straight line, they lift, they turn, they go back to power, and they stay kind of at partial throttle through the corner, and then they get back to full throttle, right? So lift early, partial throttle through the corner. If you're really quick and you're, you're at the limit, you enter at full throttle, you turn, and you actually give the car a lot of wheel at wide open throttle, which gets the car kind of rotating. And then as the car kind of pauses, like as the fuzzy dicer, you know, move, when you turn to the left, the fuzzy dice go to the right. As they swing back through the middle of the pendulum, you do a big lift off the throttle, right? Because now there's no lateral load. For an instant, there's no lateral load. You do your lift then, which which does your speed check, puts the weight on the nose, and as soon as the lateral load increases again, boom, back to the, thr- back to the throttle, mm. right? So you're still respecting weight transfer you're being aggressive with the inputs. You have to do it and coordinate it really quickly, but you're still, you're only doing that speed check and giving those front tires grip when there's no lateral, when there's as minimal lateral load as possible, which means that you're not going to end up with a moment, right? You're not going to end up with a, whoa, too much grip on the front, right? Too much rotation. And that is not easy to execute, right? Like that is a precise kind of like dance that you have to orchestrate. And that's um, that's a really fine example, but that difference may be sometimes as little as two or three tenths, sometimes as big as over half a second. And at an HBD environment, that's not time that's really worth pursuing many times because of the risk element. Yep. So that's usually the biggest gap between a, a serious, you know, high-level pro driver and and kind of somebody that's, you know, your average weekend driver, right? Um, so that that's. Very, very common sentiment. So if you're driving at Road Atlanta, VIR uphill S's, Road America's got a couple of fast corners, the kink, the S's at Coda, um, just think about how quickly weight weight transfers at speed. You have to be a little more, I don't want to say you have to be smoother with your inputs because you, you don't necessarily have to. Just remember that your inputs cause the car to change direction more quickly. They compound at speed. Adjust accordingly. Yeah, and that was, and that was something that I... I noticed kind of concretely at NOLA is I could still be quick and aggressive um, in transitions and s- steering through the the S's back there, but um, but not very much. Um, like if you know if you were going 30 miles an hour slower, you'd be putting in another five, 10 degrees worth of steering. But if you did this, you were in trouble. But if you did that, it's just right because once the car settles, like you will turn but having that experience and i think the other the other part in this too is having a car that's set up well enough that it not only communicates things back to you but that it's kind of safe and predictable enough 
that's like if you do something a little wrong it's not going to kill you that it's it you want a car that's going to do what you ask even if what you ask of it is wrong because you need to have that feedback but you don't want the wrong things to like make you look at an, in, an oncoming driver back in your in your windshield you either yeah yeah, and that's why I think you see a lot of drivers that like, and I've certainly, you know, have given check rides when I've been volunteering for like the local Porsche Club group and stuff with guys that, that get slicks on their car too soon and they yeah. mask everything with this extra grip, right? And when they get to the limit, they have no idea what to do and everything happens too quick and then they end up, you know, backwards really, really fast, right? Whereas if they had stayed on a street tire for a lot longer and just understood the dynamics are the same from a street tire to a slick, right? It's the same. It's just everything's more precise and happens a lot quicker on a slick. And once you, you know, it's kind of funny, like the, um, you know, it's been a while since I've driven slicks regularly. I was doing it on like exclusively slicks for several years and then been mostly driving like 200 Trebler tires. And now I'm going to be on slicks again at NCM, but was driving 100 Trebler tires at NOLA that were a lot stickier, like a lot stickier yeah. than most of the 200 Trebler tires that I've, I've heard. <laughs> And uh, it was, I, I, you know, having all that experience on these really sticky slicks, you know, but it had been a while. I'm like, oh, man, I haven't driven a tire this sticky in a while. I'm going to have to, there's going to be a learning curve, right? And like, nope, not really. It was like I ha- I should have been confident that, like, I know what a really sticky slick feels like and how precise I have to be and when it's going to break loose and those things. Like, I should have been more confident in that. Mm-hmm. But all that to say, like, street tires are your friend until you truly understand dynamics very, very well. Right. Yeah, we are, we here at Track Locking are big proponents of staying on the worst tire you can possibly get your hands on for as long as you possibly can. If it's, if it's lower than 300 tread wear, it's, I mean, Extreme Continental Sports P4, or was it the, yeah, just, those are, those are not slow tires, but they talk to you great. The slip angle's great. It, the feedback is phenomenal. But you drive those and you drive them well, and then you step up, you're going to be in a way better situation than if you jump up too early. Yeah. Don't spend more money for the sake of yeah. getting more grip, right? Just don't, you know, don't do it until until you can really utilize the extra grip. Yeah. What does your season look like this? You said that you're doing a bunch of coaching with PWC. What else do you have coming up? Yeah, so I've got the, uh, I think, five or six races with WRL World Racing League, so it's endurance racing. Yeah. Um, and I've got three three clients there that kind of, sometimes two of them do a race, sometimes three of them do a race. They kind of alternate, so I'll be doing those races. Um, going to be going to NCM for Grid Life, and then several apex pro related trips going to go up to brainerd with audi club in october to help them do a data classroom Ooh. might be going to nelson ledges it's not confirmed yet in august um, and then a bunch of local events um, tons of going to road atlanta in march barber in march a bunch of other stuff like that um, and then bill griffin who runs gltc called me and said hey andrew i want you to drive my car in gltc this year at some races and i was like yeah, that sounds like fun. Let's let's figure that out. Um, he's been using Apex Pro for a while, and he did some of my webinars, kind of on this type of stuff. We were talking a lot about. Um, we actually did a three-part webinar, and it was on data. Um, so analyzing your data, and I kind of built like a 
five minute, like, hey, you have five minutes to look at data between sessions. What do you look at? Super high level. Yep. And then a 20 minute review, like over lunch, what do you look at in your data? And then we talked about defining action items. So like, I'm going to pick three things from my data to actually work on. And then we talked about executing action items on track, which is basically isolating it to like one thing and how to tell if you did it or not. So it has to be measurable, um, how to help yourself remember that you're doing it. So we like really got granular on that and then talked about like what to think about before you go out on track when you're sitting on grid, stuff like that. And uh, after that, Bill reached out to me and said that he wanted me to run his car to help him um, get faster. And he wanted his car to be closer to the front in GLTC, which I guess he thinks I can do. So um, I'm going to be doing a couple of extra races with, with Bill in GLTC. So, um, and then a lot of other coaching. I've got, I think I've got like 12 or 15 weekends so far already committed and then six or seven other ones that are kind of in the works trying to figure things out. Um, so busy, a lot of time at the yeah. track. <laughs> well, good. Well, where can, um, where can people learn more about Apex Pro and uh, follow you out there on the uh, the interwebs? Yeah, uh, apextrackcoach.com is our website, apextrackcoach.com. Um, so definitely uh, definitely follow us there. Um, YouTube is a great resource if you're curious about wanting to know more about the product or if you're using one and want tutorials. Um, search If you search Apex Pro on YouTube, it's a lot of keyboard and golf club related content. Um, so search Apex Pro Track Coach, Apex Pro Driving, Apex Pro Lap Time, or something with motorsports, and you'll find us. Um, and then if you want to get to know me, shoot me a friend request on Facebook, just Andrew Rains. Last name's like the rain with an S. Um, and then I think I'm Andrew underscore Rains underscore 44 on Instagram. But uh, give us a follow. Yeah. Well, thanks for thanks for hanging out with us. Appreciate your uh Appreciate Thank your you very much. time and your, your fancy linoleum on your back wall. It's really classing up the joint. 18 bucks a panel at Home Depot. You guys should get you some. It's good stuff. I'm not no, doing thanks it. for having me on. I, I love talking. I love, I, I've listened to like your structure and the questions you've asked people. and been like, oh man, that's fascinating. And Scott and I, have, we've obviously known each other for a couple of years. So when I knew you were doing this, I'm like, oh, that, that'd be really fun. Because I can obviously talk about this stuff for a long time. Well, it's always good to to talk to drivers too who have done some of this soul searching and personal work to be able to connect their childhood desire to want to be an actor to their decisions on schooling with this passion in racing like to connect the dots and be able to explain in a way that like we get to know you better but we also get to know the the sport that we all have a just a ridiculous passion for so it's it was good yeah, um cool i've, I've enjoyed um, i've enjoyed hearing about seth's uh, motorcycle racing adventures to it and i wish i had a car track that was local because that sounds yeah. like a lot of fun me too uh, so maybe uh, it is it is it'll ruin your life it's fantastic <laughs> i can only imagine I'm, I'm not allowed to ride street bikes my wife says no street bikes i had a had a DRZ 400 SM, like the factory Motard bike in college. Yeah. That was my daily. And I shouldn't have sold it because it has only gone up in value. Like they're kind of anemic. Like if it was a 450 motocross, like motor would have been awesome. But uh, right. I've always wanted to do some knee dragging and never, never have. So uh, maybe one day. If you ever find yourself down in Houston, we'll, uh, we'll get some leathers for you. And I have a garage full of motorcycles 
Um, so there's definitely something you can write, and we'll get you the, out and the ever ex- and uh, we'll ruin that part of you the forever. It'll be ever expanding sure. garage. Uh, we are Track Walking Podcast. Please rate us and review us on whatever platform you listen. We are at Track Walking Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Track Walking Chats is the group. Uh, feel free to ask questions, post experiences, any anything like that. Um, and yeah. This has been great, um, and we'll catch you next time for the three of us. I'm Scott. I'm Seth. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm Andrew. This is Track Walking. Thanks a lot. See you next time.